Spike Ops Info Podcast, Episode 7, Madeline. Welcome to the Spy Cops Info Podcast. Um, I'm Tom Fowler. I'm joined with uh, Chris Bryan from the Undercover Research Group. And for the first time, Madeline. Welcome. Thank you. I guess you're the first person who the inquiry has found to give evidence about intimate sexual relationships. I got doorstepped by the inquiry last February. What was that like? It was. It was actually quite quite bizarre and quite surreal um, because it was early one Saturday morning um, knock on the door and husband opened the door and uh, yeah there's a guy there with a kind of very sober looking you know suit tie looking very serious with a white envelope asking you know if I lived here and uh, he said sorry can I who are you what's this all about kind of thing and it was all very, I'm sorry, but I can't, I can't tell you. I need to speak directly to her. And I'd overheard this and kind of came to the door thinking, God, what's happened? You know, this, this sounds pretty serious. Um, and I was kind of expecting some really horrible news, you know, because I thought, you know, immediately I thought, what have I done? <laughs> and then, then thought, I haven't done anything. Um, or is it some bad news about somebody? And uh, then he, you know, I just said, it's okay, you can talk in front of him. And he had this letter for me that it had to be hand delivered. Um, and yeah, it was all a bit kind of, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was unnerving. Let's put it that way, unnerving. And uh, then he, you know, he said, uh, I'm from the undercover policing inquiry. Have you um, you heard about this? And then I kind of guessed because I had actually seen Vince Miller's name. Um, I think when it was first published, but it just had a list of names and it had this name. And I thought, hang on, I knew someone called Vince was it the same Vince? Couldn't remember the surname kind of thing. And then assumed um, probably wasn't because no one's contacted me. Um, so kind of put it out of my mind, you know, just kind of thought no photo, no way of actually knowing who it, you know, whether it was the same person. And I'd had no reason whatsoever in the kind of intervening years to ever think, you know, that he was anything other than a member of the SWP. Once the le- once I'd opened the letter, which didn't actually give me very much information, it just said that I'd I'd been named as um, you know a, a victim of undercover policing, and then they said you know they they get in touch with me, um, or if I wanted to get in touch with them, there was no obligation for me to become involved, and then I I waited a long time because then you know COVID happened. If the world shut down. Um, it seems that they shut down for a period of time. And um, eventually, I think I called them and had, a, and had a chat and was then given this information that um, there's all this information about me, you know, intelligence information about me. 
um, which I wouldn't be able to see unless I signed a restriction order. So it was all sounding very, very serious and kind of a bit scary, um, you know, thinking, God, what, what on earth have they got on me? And what's the restriction order? You know, this all sounds kind of, um, you know, very serious, you know. And uh, I, I think initially we were thinking, what's the point of getting involved in this? It's going to be a whitewash. That's a really common reaction and, and a totally understandable one. I, I wouldn't blame anybody for, for doing that. Yep, yep. And thinking, you know, what will come from it? What's the point of getting involved? But it was the knowledge that there's intelligence, there's information, there's files. It's not just that, you know, you were a member of. There's actually, you know, there's actually files on you. And I thought, well, I have to see those files. I just, I, I can't let this go. I have to see the files. So, yeah, then the restriction order, I had to agree to the restriction order, which was ridiculous, you know, because it was all very, um, can't tell anyone, you know, on pain of death almost. <laughs> They'll lock you up and take away all your assets and everything if you reveal the contents of the files, which were about me, um, which seems absurd. And then when the files actually came... Um, you know, a lot of the information was just about public meetings, you know, so there was a kind of run-of-the-mill descriptions of meetings, discussions, etc. Bits redacted with, you know, which I couldn't see, but then lists of names that I could see. So, you know, everybody that was at the meeting, I could see all their names and my names and, and everything. And I thought, well, apart from the um, the privacy of those people that might not want everybody to know that they all remember the SWP or at that meeting or whatever. I thought, you know, there's hardly any state, great state secrets here. You know, it, it's uh, why, why is there this big restriction order? It was a, a, an, an anxious time, you know, waiting to kind of get these, these files and reading them and and everything it's it's it seems such a strange process the way they've done it and I, what what's really kind of angered a lot of activists is that they didn't put you in touch with the police spies out of live support group at all which is something that would been requested that if they are going to contact women who've been affected that they put those women in touch with other women who've been affected no no it didn't have and in fact you know i i, I found out later that there was an agreement already existing agreement that I would have been contacted by a woman and you know instead I was this kind of very serious sober you know I thought he I thought he was a policeman actually when he turned up you know kind of guy and uh yeah so th there wasn't much thought given to it there wasn't much kind of sensitivity and you know as this process has gone along um you know if it weren't for you know the brilliant you know legal team who are absolutely brilliant and you know all the women and you guys and everything like that I think I would have if I'd have felt that I was on my own in this process I would have thought you know much you know much harder about carrying on with it because it, it's much more stressful than I ever thought it would be it's so legal <laughs> if you see what I mean it's this whole courtroom type um, sort of setup which is really intimidating and if you're not you know kind of familiar with all the kind of the legal processes the language all of that you know it, it's uh, it, it's quite alienating really it's not civilian friendly let's put it that way <laughs> and you weren't even allowed to share the 
the evidence bundle or the intelligent reports with your with your husband is that is that correct that yeah that's crazy so when when they came I, I i said you can't look at these and he's saying don't worry i won't i won't and it just seemed ridiculous absolutely ridiculous um you know the fact is when they turned up they were so hard to read they were just ancient kind of gray um you know kind of like as if they'd been photocopied about 500 times and I had to get magnifying glass and I'm peering at these things thinking what on earth is this and eventually I mean I think you know the lawyers had the same problem and um we we tried to kind of get better quality copies and everything because it was impossible to read some of the stuff the whole thing was was absurd and it put that kind of unnecessary strain and stress when obviously you need kind of um, support emotional support when you're kind of going through things like this and then to feel that you know me just accidentally saying something could uh, you know this great bolt of lightning would come out of nowhere and you know it's just just crazy. Mm. Oh, well, thank you for persevering. Because, I, mean, I think you were an excellent witness. I think there was a sea change in the, the attitude of the chair after you gave evidence. Um, I, I mean, like, it's hard to read too much into it, but I think that your, your evidence really kind of marked, marked a bit of a turning point in the attitude, to, to a certain extent anyway. Because I was there, obviously, in the viewing room uh, listening to your evidence when you gave it. I got quite upset by the, the sort of the... The, the line of questioning is quite aggressive and hostile in places. And it really, it seemed like um, Ms. Hammerstone was trying to catch you out on like minor details a lot of the time through the questioning. I mean, like, how did you find the whole process? It, it's tricky. It's very tricky. I mean, I think it didn't feel aggressive to me, um, mainly because I was quite well prepared by Kate. <laughs> um, so... We were kind of expecting, um, we knew that there would be lots of questions about violence, although I was then beginning to get a little bit, God, another question about violence. You know, it, it seemed to be a bit kind of relentless. Um, and, you know, then in terms of the, the relationship stuff, I think because, there, you know, because we knew that there was this, um, you know, discrepancy between his version and my version, that you know there there would be um, this conflict would would give rise to close examination. Let's put it that way. I was prepared, you know, prior to that. I was thinking, if it starts getting invasive and I start feeling really really uncomfortable, I was ready to say, hang on, you know, I'm sorry, but this is <laughs> where are we going with this because you know, uh, uh, this is beginning to make me feel really uncomfortable, it seems really invasive, it seems unnecessary, and I'm not going to answer it, you know, and I was prepared to do that. But I kind of felt as though she kind of pulled back, you know, you know I, don't, I don't know whether she'd ever had any intention to go there. Um, but it, it did feel that, um, you know, she kind of, she, she didn't quite cross the line. But because of the nature of the um, the conflict um you know because i'd i'd seen and i think this this kind of goes back as much to i'd written my statement and everything without having seen what he'd said at all i hadn't seen anything about this so i'd written my statement you know i knew that there was you know that he's basically saying he had four one night stands which um you know in my case it wasn't a one night stand 
Um, so I, and, and then after I'd written my statement, I was shown a tiny snippet of his statement or his revised statement um, where he'd basically said something like, I unexpectedly invited him into my bedroom, which completely out of context of anything. And I thought, so he's, you know, what's he trying to say? And, and drink had been involved. So what's he saying? I'm some kind of, you know, <laughs> I've some drunken slut that's just leapt on him unexpectedly. And that's, you know, so, I, I, you know, I, I kind of felt that we ha that had to, had to be pushed back on, really. So then I knew it was going to kind of get a bit what happened. Um, yeah, so, so, yeah, I mean, I could understand, though, um, how other people listening to it must have felt. Um, I was so nervous prior to it that I was almost kind of um, not slightly detached from my body, as it were, but it was, um, I was just kind of concentrating on kind of getting through it without just completely freezing and, and uh, uh, messing it all up, really. But, um, yeah, I can understand how other, other people felt, especially... Um, you know, I think some of the other women are um, have been really impacted by this. You know, been really um, messed up. You know, by by this whole thing. And to some extent, I feel as though I kind of got off lightly. It was a short relationship that was many years ago. Um, I'm quite, I'm quite a kind of tough, robust person. <laughs> um, so I felt that. You know, and and other people may not be, and you know they really need to think about how this how this kind of goes forward for them. So, if it could be used as a kind of learning exercise, uh, uh, you know, good. I'm gl I'm glad about that. But some, obviously, some of the other women need to be kind of questioned in a much more, or even you know whether e even they should be questioned. You know, it all has to be dealt with in a much much more sensitive way um, for them because you know. The, the danger is that people get re-traumatised, you know, and it's obviously impacted their lives hugely, you know, in a really negative way already. It's a big problem with this whole process, isn't it? Because, you know, as activists, we want to try and, like, kind of push at every like level we can to get more truth, get more understanding of what they were actually up to, sort of, you know, kind of all that. That's not what the inquiry's trying to do. The inquiry's got a very limited thing, and it, there isn't some overlap there which we get to, like, push at. But... Is it worth, like you say, is it worth the re-traumatising of people? I mean, it's a really difficult question. I think it's really difficult. Yeah, it, it, well, it's hard. But I think it's this whole kind of courtroom legal type kind of setting that it's kind of happening in. And, you know, maybe they, they need to kind of pause, rethink the way that, that everything's done, um, find a more kind of creative, more sympathetic, more kind of human way of kind of carrying on because it does seem so process um focused and it does feel as though you know what with the restriction orders and the i mean um you know the redactions and everything and you know th th there's this examination of our politics you know as, as if to say well you come on then justify yourself why were they spying on you and yet <laughs> i was thinking and then you hear the questioning of the police and the questioning, apart from Vince Miller, uh, where they did actually kind of get tougher with him. You know, the whole questioning of the police has, has been, it's been fairly dry, hasn't it? It's all been about, 
you know, what was the training like? Where were you living? What was, did you have a cover vehicle? It's all that type of stuff. And I thought, actually, I'd like them to start exploring the psychology of these guys a lot more. Because I think that it's like the elephant in the room, isn't it, really? Because you think to yourself, um, you know, let's start asking them about their politics. Were they racist? What, what do they think about women? Were they sexist? Um, you know, did they have sympathy for the NF? What did they feel about lying and deceiving? You know, not just women, but everybody else. You know, we're all brought up with this kind of, you know, moral code, aren't we? <laughs> about being honest and being open and being truthful. And, you know, especially, you know, with, well, with people, you know, and, and having those types of relationships. The fact that their remit is so the opposite of that you know, where they're deliberately lying, deliberately deceiving, how the hell do they lie in bed next to somebody that they're spying on? I, I, it's just, you know, I, this, this I find is a really kind of fascinating um, aspect that's just not being explored a, a, at all. And I'd, I'd like to see a lot more tough questioning about that for them, really. And you know, one of the things I suppose that we've learned from this tranche to some extent from this group of hearings was pretty much except maybe for graham coach they all defended their operations in very sort of very what I call like a general or corporate defense they said oh we did it because x might have happened but when it came down to concrete examples of what they actually stopped happening which was so terrible that it may or have possibly justified all this I can't actually think of one single example of anything they actually stopped or, I mean, can you? Can you? No, no. <laughs> totally missing, I would say, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we've heard about the the, the two killings, um, the, the punching of the fa in the face by the undercover copper. We heard about the other undercover officers that were on demonstrations and then were... Um, attacked by the police, you know, completely dis indiscriminately suddenly attacked. So they're aware of the, you know, the level of, of, of police violence in those situations. And yet, you know, apart from maybe one or two of them saying somebody got a bit hot-headed and may have kind of shouted at the National Front and maybe somebody, you know, threw a punch somewhere along the line, um, it, it yeah it, it's all and and then obviously you know what's becoming apparent as well is how aware they were of the violence of the national front you know because you know vince miller himself said he first came into contact with the swp sellers at the top of walthamstow market when they were being confronted by the national front so it's like it's it was and in those days it was you know far right violence was was a real thing it, it wasn't a kind of um you know we it it was happening you know not just you know we, we know about all the the racist killings the fire bombings and all the rest of it and they were also attacking the left um so yeah it's uh the, these are the things that are being revealed I, I, mean, I think it's something which is really missing from the inquiry is like the the actual the sense of the of, of the far right violence that existed at that time, we kind of got glimpses of it being mentioned, but we didn't really, you know, the, within the context of it, it, it it really felt like there was 
you know, the, 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 the way that the Special Demonstration Squad were operating was, you know, by not even thinking about the way the National Front were, were carrying on, but like targeting anti-fascists, that they were essentially supporting the far right. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the questions was obviously was asked from our side for the council for the inquiry to ask was, why didn't you, because it did seem that a lot of the undercovers had um, a kind of uh, a choice which groups they infiltrated, um, most notably Graham Coates, but also mainly they seemed to have to be able to pick and choose. And it was put to them, why didn't you choose to infiltrate a far right group? Um, and I think Miller and perhaps and one other one said, well, they weren't really a threat at the time, which is completely. Was it? Did Miller say that as well? Or... Did he say they weren't considered? I, I mean, I don't know whether he meant hit him. That's right. They didn't come under the heading. Yes, that's right. They didn't. They weren't categorised as. But other undercover officers were saying things like, "Well, they weren't a problem," you know, like this sort of absolute kind of like. And we see this a lot, I think, from uh, from the establishment, where you know that far right politics is like kind of classed as being legitimate working class, white working class concerns, whereas you know left wing politics is somehow like subversion and like kind of working yeah. for foreign powers. And there's so much of that kind of still informs, I think, the outlook of the people who are running the inquiry as much as the undercover police back then. Well, I, I thought it was telling when I, I think it was a not, you know not just one. I think a couple of the officers said something like, you know, well, what did you count as subversion? Well, whatever they told me was subversion. So it's like it's like this kind of authoritarian kind of mindset. I'm just doing my job. I don't think I just do as I'm told, which, which I find very very chilling. That you know we have people in the you know in positions of authority and power. Um, you know, maybe that that's why they get into positions of authority and power. I don't know. But there, there's a definite kind of psychological <laughs> thing going on there. I think, I can't remember which officer it was. No, I think that was actually in a report that the, um, one of the police reports, and they were talking about one of the problems is when they it did eventually start to infiltrate the right, was that none of the none of the ucos wanted to do it and they felt real antipathy towards the people that they were had, had infiltrated so if there was a kind of like a break for, for a while they didn't want to go back in because they found them i think it was violent bigoted and crude <laughs> that was i think that's in the, the bob lambert report isn't it that's right on mike chitty yeah yeah and <laughs> i would add and there were no pretty girls, you know. So wh where would you rather go? Where would you rather go? Um, you know, but yeah, talking about, um, you know, far-right violence, it was something that David Barr actually asked Vince Miller when he was probing him about, um, did it ever kind of go into kind of vigilantism, you know, kind of thing, this defending communities and all the rest of it. And there's a point that I'd wished I'd made when I gave my um, evidence, but it kind of gone out of my mind. And it, I think it was brought up talking about the Dagenham Axe clan. Yeah. And them saying and her saying, you know, you know, what, what did you do? And after I was thinking, why didn't I say, well, you know, this is and, and what actually happened was they were attacked. Brick goes through the window and all the rest of it. They were so petrified that people went down in a rotor. And what they actually did 
was barricade the door from the inside. So we barricade, they barricaded, I, di- I didn't go, but friends of mine did, barricaded themselves inside. So this was a family who were attacked by these local fascists in, in, in Dagenham? In Dagenham, that's right. So it was a white, uh, uh, in those days, Dagenham, it's changed now, but it was wholly white, you know, it's the, the huge um, council estate, wholly white at the time. And I think she was um, black, uh, or mixed race, black, and he was, and he was Jewish. The boyfriend was Jewish. I think, I think that's what it was. Yeah, and a brick was thrown through the window, which was wrapped in a far right, you know, kind of um, leaflet. The police claimed that there was no trace of the Dagenham X clan anywhere. I found them. I found a reference to them in a in a fascist book. Um, apparently, they were Hawkwind fans and hip, like they they dressed like hippies. Um, and to, according to this far right autobiography, um, he said he knocked around with them for a short while. And they were, yeah, there was they were, they were a small group of people who looked like hippies from the outside, but they were from Dagenham and were particularly uh, uh, got, used to attack the local Sikhs allegedly. According to this fascist book, I don't know how true. And you, you can't take any of that, but yeah. So they set up a rotor because the, the fa- you know, this, this couple were so terrified they couldn't sleep. You know, the letterbox was sealed up because one of the things that were going on as well is that houses were being firebombed and they were pouring petrol through the letterbox in the middle of the night, throwing in a match. So they were too terrified to sleep. And friends of mine that went down there, I think it went on for a few weeks where um, this kind of rotor was maintained. We collected mattresses. Mattresses were taken down there and they were put against the windows. So mattresses against the windows, the front door completely barricaded. And then somebody would sit on watch. So it would be like, I'm, I'm on watch duty for the next three hours, then you can take over. So that this couple who were at the back of the house could actually just go to sleep. You know, it, so that was it. it you know, it's not... It, it was real self, you know, defence. It, it was nothing to do with vigilantism or, or, you know, or anything. And I think at Brick Lane as well, where, where the community had set up um, kind of patrols, which, which were kind of going round. And it was mostly the young, um, the, the young Asian guys uh, who had set up these patrols. And, you know, Vince Miller again had talked about going down there overnight and, and staying overnight to get the pitch at the top of the market. Well, the places where people were staying, one was in a pub that had um, a sympathetic, you know, to to the community landlord who basically said, yeah, you can sleep in the pub and you could look down from, no, no, it wasn't that. And then the other place was a garment factory. So it was an Asian, um, you know, kind of factory owner and he'd let them stay overnight. So it had the support of the locals, you know, they wanted the SWP, you know, to be there because um, they didn't want the NF there at all. And yet it was couched in the terms of, um, you know, that we were preventing the National Front from um, having legal demonstrations or, you know, whatever, as if, well, you know, they have a right to protest, they have a right to what right did you have to interfere with it? And you think, well, hang on. <laughs> they don't have the right to kind of go around attacking people and terrorising communities, so... Let, let's be clear, th- th- those those scumbags don't have a right to shit, man. They can, they, they can fucking rot. 
totally agree. <laughs> totally agree. Yeah. But I mean, I think that, that really, you know, that sense you've just given us there of like kind of the, 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 the real violence that was coming from the far right, it just it wasn't coming over with the inquiry at all, you know? I think, I suppose an analogy is like the way that the British state treated the South African apartheid regime because it was anti-communist. They supported it both overtly and covertly. And similarly, the Nazis weren't seen as a threat because clearly they were anti-communist. So in terms of the, if put in those Cold War terms, then you, you, that, that might, you know, that's to give the you know, broader context of why they were generally ignored or even tolerated. Well, well, I have absolutely no doubt that if the British state needed to kind of get in bed with the fascists, they would to maintain their power. 100%. And I think, like, it's such a, you know, if if the if the state had got away with, like, successfully suppressing the anti-fascist movement at that time, and the National Front had, like, been able to blossom in the way that they really wanted to, what kind of Britain would we be living in? Yeah. You know, and I mean, I think we, we, we owe a, a huge debt to people, you know, of your generation who were part of the anti-fascist movement in the 70s for stopping the National Front in their tracks, because otherwise... It, it could have got as bad as it was it could have got so much so much worse oh yeah absolutely and, and i think the thing is you know you have you have to be ever vigilant because it you know it was defeated in the 30s it it took a nosedive in the early 80s or whatever but it's never far away you know i mean just you know you, you just have you just have to kind of uh you know look around the world you have to look at the you know the far right in europe that that's that's rising up again you know th these people it's it's uh it, it won't go away you know every generation i think was gonna gonna end up having to you know kind of um fight back against it because it, i think because those those kind of social attitudes like um that they, they serve the state really well i mean like so, you know in 77 the national front you know became third in popular vote in the uk and then i mean the reason they didn't do so well in 79 was because thatcher's tories had taken so many of the policies and we see a really similar thing now with the current Conservative Party, you know, with the way in which that they've taken so many, so much of the right wing's like kind of clothes and they, they're wearing them. And I mean, we talk about like kind of what was the point of these undercover officers? And, you know, like we said, they, they weren't there to stop any kind of individual event happening. But it was it was kind of it's the slow war on social progress. I mean, that's what I believe anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Every time any kind of gains are made, sort of progressive gains of trade union activity or the welfare state or education system, I mean, I know loads of people sort of date, if you like, um, what's called neoliberalism to, to the start of like the early 70s, but really all those gains are on under attack from the state from the very beginning. And I think you could just, if you look at the undercover policing in in that broader context, you can see why it happened because part of the state is already is always trying to fight back against any kind of you know progressive gains in that any kind of social justice gains all the time from you know from day one and yeah i think it's just i think sometimes when we we sort of zoom in on undercover police and we kind of because we're looking at the individual actions of the undercovers of the unit that we sort of forget the broader context of that that you know, there's always that reaction from 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 the right, and it's continuous. It isn't then and now. Well, it's it's class war. <laughs> Simple as that. It's class war. You know, uh, you know that they would, the lengths that they took to basically stop Corbyn coming to power. Um, you know, and and I, and I suspect that any progressive um, 
you know, uh, left government that com- that comes in w- would face exactly the same problems. You know, they, they this is this is the problem, isn't? You know, all this talk about violence and all the rest of it, and you know, violent revolution, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you think, well, you know, no, we'd love a peaceful revolution, actually, but you know, the state won't they, they won't let it go. You know, they 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 will not give up power. Um, so what do we do? Yeah, yeah, totally. And I, I think that, you know, the kind of, the, the, there's so many things about, like, kind of, like we, we said about the, the, the context of the far right, but then the other context of, like, the, we talk so much about the covert policing, but the overt policing that you're experiencing at the time, you know, I just, if we talk a bit about that, you know, the kind of, that, like, as, as well as having these undercover officers in the movements, the way that they were, over, like, policing demonstrations, the way that they were, you know, like, you were getting that kind of repression on the street from the police as well. I think that's been really missing from from the, the the context of the inquiry, you know. I think we're now into double figures with the number of undercover police officers who were who were assaulted by their their uniformed. Uh, I laugh because it is funny by their uniformed colleagues. Yeah. You know, there is a lighter side to the inquiry. <laughs> there's, a, there's always an upside. <laughs> I I had a couple of run-ins with the police. Um, you know, pr- prior to you know, sort of Vince Miller. And I can remember, actually, and I think it was 1975. And for some reason, they decided to allow the British movement, I think it was the British movement, to assemble in Trafalgar Square. Now, there'd there'd been um, a kind of, like, you know, a ban on this. You weren't allowed to do it. They weren't allowed to stand up in Trafalgar Square. And then they decided that they would. So a crowd of us went down there. And we couldn't get anywhere near the square at all because basically there were so many police everywhere and they were up, you know, on the, by the lions and, and all the rest of it. And so everyone was just kind of shouting from a distance and, and everything. And I was with a, a friend who had, and we were just standing around, and I had a friend who had a camera. So we'd taken this very nice expensive camera down there to take some pictures um, of you know, the fascists. So we were sort of standing slightly separately from, uh, you know, everyone, like nowhere near the police. Suddenly I became aware that this couple of coppers standing probably, I don't know, 20 feet away, something like that, pointed and one of them shouted, get the camera, get the man with the camera. Suddenly come flying over, knocked me out of the way, grabbed the, the guy, wrestled him to the, and we were so surprised all we were doing is taking is taking a, a a picture, and grab the camera. He's rolling round on the floor, Hank, say, and they're trying to pull the film out the camera. And he's going, "Hank, don't break my camera! What, what's going on?" Kind of thing. All I'm doing is taking a picture, and I've been kind of pushed out the way, and I instinctively, because my friend is rolling round on the floor with with this one copper on him, the other copper that was kind of leaning over, I just sort of grabbed his shoulder, just not thinking just grabbed his shoulders like what are you doing and he fell over backwards <laughs> then leapt up to, uh, to turn around because I'm behind him turned round and, and I'm thinking oh shit sorry he's gone he's gone down and turned round with it with a fist like this ready to punch whoever it you know it, whoever it was turned round and saw me like oh, five foot three seven and a half stone <laughs> looking kind of <laughs> like like a and in those days I looked very young for my age as well and turned around 
pulled his fist back as if I, I cannot hit this girl and sort of get, put a, you know, his arms around me in a bear hug and he hissed in my ear and he said, stop being a stupid little girl. Get out of this square now as you're nicked and your mate kind of thing. And we were just left shocked, you know, and, you know, and, you know, this, this happened on a few, not that didn't kind of um, exactly happen like that. But I can remember other occasions where we'd gone along at kind of anti-NF things, not got anywhere near them and yet been crushed by the police, just pushed back, pushed back, pushed back. And I can remember being somewhere in the East End and we were in a street being pushed back against shop fronts, big plate glass windows, and we were literally being crushed into them. And my friend, another friend that was with me, and we were really worried, thinking the window's going to go, we're all going to go through the glass because it was literally, you know, we're now being crushed. We can't, nobody could breathe, nobody could get out, and they're moving forward and forward and forward. And then this door suddenly burst open because of the weight of the bodies and everybody fell into this, they were kind of derelict shops, I think, fell into this uh, hallway. And we then managed to kind of all all kind of get into this hallway to kind of escape the crush. Completely, you know, unprovoked. We weren't doing anything. So there there were lots of things like that happening all the time and just, you know, just the the general kind of attitude of the police... um, it was was fairly hostile at the time. I mean, I think once once you put those things together, you know, of like kind of uh, you know the far right uh, give, given a free hand essentially, you know, the, the the overt you know repression and the covert repression that was going on. Yeah. You know, it's an incredibly dystopian reality of nineteen seventies Britain. It, it was, yeah. That sense isn't com- the, the the inquiry isn't operating with that sense in mind. You know, it's like it's like writing about the Second World War without mentioning Nazism or something. Do you know what I mean? It, it feels like the, this is the background that's going on. This is the context. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean, it was. I think the thing is, you know, for a lot of people on the left, because you know the early sort of you know after 1968 and the early 70s, that you know there was a lot of uh, lots of strikes. There was a lot of um, progress kind of being made, and and you know people were beginning to think yeah it's kind of it's all taking off it's it's this is brilliant you know things are beginning to change and then there was a kind of a downturn and there was you know a downturn in you know kind of strike activity the dystopia descended yeah and and a lot of people got really demoralized you know very demoralized you know when um you know i think you know a lot of a lot of people at the time basically thought oh god you know the working class are just racist they're just um you know they they're kind of flocking to them um you know it yeah it it was kind of depressing and i think as well there was there was a sense of uh, panic you know about christ what's going to happen you know if these people are, are gaining traction they're getting votes and everything and you know i think yeah it, it was quite it was quite dark um so yeah it was kind of necessity really we had to we had to kind of organize and you know take them on really yeah absolutely absolutely and and and, and thank fuck you did man jesus christ like you know it could have been so much worse so like going back to um the inquiry then so like the, ne- the day after you gave evidence we heard vince miller's evidence um you, you watched that as well yeah? i did yeah how did you find that experience i was absolutely dreading seeing him you know because obviously in my my mind 
his this 20 something you know his his yeah the whole thing has has just been very you know very strange because obviously whenever I, you know i i rarely ever th- thought about him um but when i did it's like you know it, it's kind of something from the past that's who he was that's what happened etc et you know then to know that the whole thing was a bloody fiction and that uh, you know he he's just a he's he's a spook he's a phantom it it's it's just a very um you know had i known at the time you know it would have had a devastating effect on me i know because i i was quite a you know i am still i'm a pretty trusting person in those days i was quite naive i was quite innocent and i trusted people i took them at face value and um you know i, I was a bit of a you know total romantic let's put it that way and always saw the best in everyone you know i really did that's but that's good right that's how we should live i mean that, this is the great sort of danger of all this is that like i mean I, i'm the same i i take people to face face value and it's so it it's the worst thing about these this, these infiltrations is that it, it somehow affects our characters it can affect our personalities you know and like we can't allow it to we really can't allow it to no, no, that's right. That's right. Yeah, we, we just we just have to we have to hang on to our humanity, <laughs> I think, really. And I think and that that's the whole thing. It, it's kind of like it's the antithesis. You know, their behavior is the antithesis of everything that's good. It really is. It, it's like, you know, you know, without sounding like an old hippie kind of thing. It's like we, we you know, we have a message of love. You know, we, we kind of. You know, and and yet their behaviour—it's uh, just—it's just, uh, it's just ugh, chilling and horrible. It's it's uh, yeah, I just can't get my head around it really. Um, so yeah, so I was dreading seeing him. I kind of think of them as like butterfly collectors. You know, them taking something beautiful and then killing it and put it in a book and to categorise it. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. Maybe that's not such a good analogy. Taking something out of its context, but then file well, is what they did. They put it in the file and stuck it in in this huge um, archive. Yeah, well, it's it's dehumanising, isn't it? You know, I, I'd really like to know. You know, how, I mean, it doesn't sound as though they actually had that much training, but you kind of think, you know, what did, what did they have? Pictures of kind of like this is a typical left wing so and so. I don't. Who did they think we were? It's just beyond me, really. It's, uh, you know, this kind of othering of us, really, that, that we were some kind of, you know, hooligan, subversive, troublemaking, you know, um, enemy of the state, which it, it's, uh, yeah, this is the authoritarian mindset, I think, you know, just saw us, just saw us as a kind of bunch of, I don't know, just labels that, that meant nothing. We talked about the Tradecraft Manual a little bit, and that was in some ways like an instruction book on how to dehumanise people. I don't know if you've had a look at that document very much. It was definitely very much labelling people. So, and I think it was like an induction on how to just to spy on people to invade their lives without feeling bad about it because they were sort of less than than normal, less than human. Yeah, one of the things the Tradecraft Manual did is assigned behaviours to the people who they were infiltrating, which were like patently impossible like the one of them was like eating mold you know these people eat moldy food and it's just like it's just not like nobody does that right it's just it's a non it's it's not a human behavior like it's and it's part of that sort of that approach of just like kind of if they can dehumanize us all enough then they they can behave as complete psychopaths around us and it's okay because we're not really not really people 
and and uh, yeah so it's like how did they select them or were they self-selecting you know just well i'm a psychopath i'm gonna i'm gonna go for that job or what you know I mean, they were already police officers. And I think that, I mean, this is the thing that I think is like, to me comes to a lot from the way they were talking about how special branch were at the time and, you know, how the police are generally and always have been, is that, you know, that they weren't an anomaly within the police. This is just what cops are like. When uh, Chris was uh, talking about the women's voice thing um, the other day, and you think, actually... When you think about, you know, all the, you know, the movements, you know, the equality movements, whether it's, you know, equal pay, maternity leave, you know, contraception, nurseries, all of all of the things would have benefited them as well. You know, that's what's so crazy is that, you know, it would have affected their wives, their girlfriends, their lives in general would have improved them. So how they managed to compartmentalise you know this this stuff you know or did they ever feel conflicted that that's what i'd really like to kind of ask them you know did you feel guilty or conflicted that, that was the classic thing we heard from sandra during the first mm. phase who was um, the female undercover police officer and it was pointed out that while she was infiltrating a group that were campaigning for equal pay she was on was it 80 percent or 70 percent of the wages of the other undercover officers that she was working alongside i mean it literally you know i mean we talk about false consciousness a lot <laughs> but like i mean that's such an example isn't it you know I mean, I know that's that's the word false consciousness. Yeah, she did say that she was sympathetic to some of their ideas, wasn't she? And, and actually, to date, she is the only one who has outright said that she could have been doing something better <laughs> with her time than than spying on these groups. But I mean, I think in terms of like the patriarchal attitude and the misogyny, I think I mean that just shows how deep it is, and particularly within you know those those either the establishment or the defenders of the establishment is that even if it's in their own best interest they just they they're unwilling to recognize you know the the the, the legitimate like um demands of women because well you're women so like just shut up basically i mean that really really is their attitude you know yeah stop being so angry <laughs> yeah stop being so angry <laughs> literally yeah and i mean we we see that in the kind of um graham coates was was surprisingly open about that element of it. I think he was very close about a lot of other things, but you know, he's you know he, the way that he talks about the the banter backroom culture that existed, which you know was very much like that. I, I mean, I don't think that the police were actually that unusual in that either, really. I mean, you know, I, I when I worked on the buses, my God, the banter you would have heard there. It was, um, yeah, you know, it, I think. You know, it's it's way less acceptable now. But I think you know, back in the back in the in the seventies, in largely male environments, I, I hate to say. <laughs> um, you know, for example, when I when I worked on the buses, it was you know it was a big bus garage, uh, lots of drivers, very very few women worked there, and in fact, walking into the canteen was an endurance test. You know, you walked into the canteen, the first time you walked in, um, you would get maybe 150 blokes all turning around whistling and making comments and and you'd be thinking oh my god yeah and and that that's you know that happened frequently until they got to know you kind of thing or until you kind of challenged them in some way but you know a new a woman that they'd never seen before comes in and you know it would it people that and it was just it was horrible you know uh, but it was acceptable behavior unfortunately 
I think that's like that's another one of those social attitudes that like the undercover police were part of the war against. You know, is that they they were defending you know the the the, the continued existence of that of that kind of misogyny, and that like part of their job was was to defend the ability, you know, <laughs> men's right to wolf whistle at women. You know, that was kind of part of it. You know, yeah, it probably said in their job job description is being on the wrong side of history. That is like their job. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Well, there's such a narrow part, right, of what was going on at that time. There's such a narrow part of our kind of like the reason why you know movements were oppressed, why kind of you know campaigns didn't succeed or like succeeded against the odds. And this inquiry is only looking at a very small part of it. Um, it's been quite frustrating in a lot of ways to kind of to really kind of bring out the kind of you know actually what was going on there and it's not about like you say it's not about like kind of oh did you have a cover vehicle it is about the attitudes of those officers and the attitudes of society at the time you know and the way in which you know like something which Diane Langford said earlier during this uh, phase was that you know as much as there's been this big thing or oh, we can't judge people then by the morals of now the ethics of now are different but there was plenty like you know, and you're a testament that you you lived those time. There were people who were who weren't sexist, who weren't racist, who weren't homophobic. You know, and that we like we do a disservice to all of them by pretending they didn't exist back then. You know, it it, and that's what the inquiry, well, the, the police sort of input to the inquiry keeps trying to do. Yeah, absolutely, you're right. Yeah, I mean, and Graham Coates was a, a, was a as much as um, <laughs> I hate to give him any credit, he, he was quite good in that. And he said that even within the context of the 1970s, the, the language and the jokes made in within the, ST, the Special Demonstration Squad safe house would be unacceptable for, to most people, even at the time. Yeah, yeah, I can believe it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did you actually see him uh, giving evidence? Yeah, yeah, or... yeah, yeah, we did. Oh, you did? Yeah. OK. I mean, it was quite I mean, interesting. He, um, he had, uh, you, do you know Kropotkin's beard? He ha he'd stylized his beard in the same way, you know. It kind of it's a goatee that fans out. He he had that on the go, and I, I really felt like when it was put to him, he was like um, the anarchist police officer. He looked so chuffed. It really annoyed me. I was like, "Fuck you, man! You don't get to be in the gang. You're not in the gang. You can get you yeah. piss off, you know." I mean, it was basically anarchism was his hobby, and he got to do it and get got paid for it for like three or four years. And like you know, he got to meet one of his big big idols, Albert Meltzer. You know, he's like, oh, he's like amazing. You know, yeah. not you know. Uh, I mean, basically, I think he he saw it as I say as a hobby instead of like train train spotting or stamp collecting. He yeah. he did that and got paid for it. Which is really annoying because I, you know, it was basically a large part of my life was being a bit of a geek about anarchism. And I never got bloody paid. <laughs> so so he was a bit of a kind of anarchist groupie. Do you think? <laughs> So I hope I'm not going to offend you here, but because he, he, he initially he was deployed to the SWP, but left because it was a bit bored. The meetings were boring, so he thought it might be might be more fun with the anarchists, which you know me and Tom might agree with. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> let's not get too sectarian yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. No, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> but yeah, no, it it did seem he basically did what he liked, amongst other things. He said he he pretty much conceded that all. The people, as far as he knew, none of the people that he actually spied upon, which included um, spying on uh, a residential house with a, a young family, had you know they didn't pose a threat, um, as far as he knew, anyway. No, and, and it, I think it it was just it was obvious, wasn't it? Halfway through, you know, a, a few months de deployment in any of these groups, and you you'd have thought that they'd be saying, "Well, I can't see any subversion here. What am I doing here?" You know. <laughs> 
but that didn't seem to kind of cross anyone's mind. But that's because it's like it, it literally wasn't about that, and I think it was about the war on social progress. It was about the war on attitudes, and it's like it's it was a slow war, and like I think on a lot of things they kept. They kept, you know, a lot of things alive that should have been stamped out. You know, I mean, like whether it's the far right, whether it's the misogyny. You know, these, these were the issues. These are what they're actually there to do. You know, the, uh, I think maybe a lot of them believed it was about public disorder and subversion, but I think that there's, you know, I think further up, you know, there was more of a sort of understanding that it's just like keeping down the lefties. You know, keeping down left wing attitudes. Yeah, keeping our tabs on them, getting their names. Uh, you know, working out where they lived and all the rest of it, you know, because we never know when we're going to have to round them up. Well, I mean, yeah, that was the other thing. I mean, like with, with Vince Miller's evidence, he was, you know, you got the impression that literally if you had ever picked up a copy of Socialist Worker in his area, he'd have been to your house. Because I think so many of us knew that undercover police existed um, whilst we were active. But we always thought that they were like what we've heard about a lot from the inquiry, but what officers were doing before they became undercover officers, where they were like plainclothes special branch officers going to meetings and demonstrations, you know, and that we I always thought that that was kind of what undercover police were, you know, and it's that kind of thing of the, the more you real, the more you learn about it, the more the depth that they would go to, you know, it was such it was so much deeper than than we ever realized, you know. Yeah, it, yeah, it's sinister. Yeah. Even that, you know, mo- they could have walked into any public meeting, sat down, recorded what got said. They wouldn't have known the names of the people that were there. So obviously that, that, that's a big part of it, gathering the information on the individuals. But in terms of, you know, the broad ideas and all the rest of it, you know, most of the groups were completely open. You know, uh, anyone could kind of turn up. Anyone could. There, there were no secret cabals, no kind of, you know, underground bomb making things going on, at least not to my knowledge. Anyway. Uh, but do you, know, do you know what I mean? It's like they could have got that information. Anyway, just pick up socialist work if you know, want to know what the politics are or freedom press or whatever, you know. Yeah, but they, they wanted to know the address of anybody who ever bought a copy. It, the, 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 their desire for knowledge was so much deeper than like, it, what we like, it's almost like, what's the point? But it's that it's that strength of the the tentacles of the state. They really felt secure. Like you say, if they when it came to the point where they had to round us all up, they knew where we all lived. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and the fact that they could find me, however many years later, <laughs> the, the, I mean, you know, that that's that was another aspect of it. You know, when they got in touch with me, you know, I was kind of thinking, God, they found me really easily, didn't they? Um, and you know, then this worry that if I stick my head up and you know start saying yeah this is who i am kind of thing um are they going to turn up again will, will the monitoring increase again you know that they may have kind of i might have been lying dormant for a few years but uh, suddenly it, it could increase again or that the far right you know might suddenly yeah you know um decide that they're going to chuck a brick through my window or something or, or worse you know in terms of the if you like the flow of information we now know it wasn't just special branch who were interested in this both this collection of massive of information but as mi5 as well which i think before the beginning of the actual hearings we we were aware that mi5 was somehow involved but we we didn't think they were we, i suppose perhaps mistakenly we thought they'd be, be interested in more serious stuff or more uh, i suppose soviet stuff and more yeah you know, and that kind of thing but it seems that they also had a an absurd interest in the trivia for instance of the membership of 
for instance, what was it Walthamstow SWP branch? They wanted they wanted all the names. I mean, and this is MI5. Well, not just the names. They wanted to know where you worked, whether you were in the union, how much you earned, physical descriptions of everyone, who you lived with, physical descriptions of them, how much they earned. You know, all the networks, who was friends with who, who was, you know, who was married to who. Um, you know, everything. They wanted to know, you know, every aspect of your life, really. I think that's why... When we look at like um, how Big Flame reacted when they um, they outed Rick Gibson, and they they discovered he was an undercover cop, and there was like when we initially first heard about that, a lot of us were like, oh, well, why didn't they make a fuss about it then? You know, we could have, but the reality of it was they were fucking terrified. They were so terrified from discovering what appeared to be undercover police officer in their unit that they put the information in a sealed envelope and then gave it to someone saying, only release this if something happens to a member of Big Flame. That like. And it's that fear that, I mean, like, the fear you just expressed, I think, is, you know, it's it's a totally rational fear to have because, I mean, it's something that I definitely found after Michael Jacobs, we kind of unearthed him. I was like, well, do I really want to make a fuss out of this? First time they sent, like, a jokey guy into my life. Who do they send next? Who's the next person they send in? Well, I think, you know, that whole, after that initial inquiry uh, contact, you know, I did actually start to feel quite paranoid. You know, just kind of, you know, just thinking there's all this unknown, suddenly, suddenly all this unknown stuff, you know, ha, you know, who's been spying on me? When did it start? When did it stop? Who else have they been spying on? Um, are they still, you know, that whole thing? And I really did feel that, you know, it was like, there was this like big eye in the sky looking at me, um, you know, kind of thing. It, it did, the idea of having any privacy went out the window. I just felt, you know, they possibly know every single thing about me. You know, I've always been really careful with um, social media and stuff like that. You know, I'm always I'm thinking you're giving so much stuff away, you know, Facebook or the rest of it, you know. Yeah, and I've always been kind of aware of that. But yeah, I did actually feel quite exposed for, for a while. And then I just kind of thought to myself, fuck it. <laughs> it's just going to... If they want to know what I think now, I'm going to tell them. <laughs> Fucking right. Absolutely. And I think it's it's such a fine line for us as activists who are like making a fuss about all this stuff. It's been such a fine line to like kind of encourage people to like be aware of it, but also not be paranoid. Like you don't want people to, to be like um, cowed into inaction because they're like scared of, of the state. Yeah, you can't live in fear. You can't live in fear. No, you, you need to stick your head up <laughs> and uh, you know and, and I think you know it, we, we've had there's a lot of kind of historic examples I suppose of people total heroes complete heroes I'd never compare myself to any of these people but you know that there, there's sometimes you just have to stand up and be counted don't you even though you might be quaking inside and thinking oh god um sometimes you just have to well thank you for joining us we'll have you back on the show some other time and um yeah cheers Okay, can I just say you, you're doing a brilliant job. You, you're, you know, trying to get it all out there to lots of people. And thank you for inviting me both of you. Oh, thank you. No, thank you. Thank you, dude. Cheers. If you want to know more about this topic or stay up to date with what we're doing, check out spycops.info. We're grateful to the campaign opposing police surveillance for supporting us so we could buy some microphones and to La Pub for giving us studio space. We'd really like to improve more. If you're able to help, please get in touch.